I'm Allison Kulo. And I'm Doug Wells. Welcome to Mound Money on KPCW. An extensive public survey of residents in both rural and urban areas of Utah indicates Utahns have strong feelings about housing, water, transportation, and open space needs going into the future. In May, Governor Spencer Cox kicked off the Guiding Our Growth survey, engaging the public in a discussion about how Utahns think the state should respond to the challenges and opportunities that growth brings. The survey closed on August 31st, and the results are now in. Joining us this morning to highlight the survey results is Laura Hansen with the Governor's Office of Planning and Budget. Laura, thank you for joining us on Mountain Money. Thank you so much. Let's begin with the purpose of the study and the survey. In what areas did the state of Utah focus on and query Utah residents with regards to the guiding the growth? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, We have been hearing through a bunch of various different um, community polls that Utahns for the first time really in in, um, the years that we've been tracking um, these questions that they're feeling that growth may not be a good thing for Utah. Historically, we've been, yeah, more growth, more jobs. That's a wonderful thing. Utahns are starting to be a little bit wary about that growth. Maybe they're seeing more traffic congestion, different land uses and and development happening in their communities. And so we thought this would be a great time to check in with Utahns and just get a sense of how they're feeling, what's happening in their hearts and minds about growth. Um, We wanted with this survey to help Utahns. So there's an educational component to it. We wanted to help Utahns understand and explore the effects of different growth options. You could grow this way and here are the things that happen, or you could grow this way and here's how it affects various different issues. Uh, we wanted to solicit their input. Obviously, it's a it's a survey and a conversation about growth. So we wanted to hear what Utahns thought. We wanted to make sure everyone had a chance to share their thoughts and be part of planning for our future. And then the products of this will be uh, generating a list of, of big ideas. So these might be strategic investments or policy direction to help decision makers and policymakers in our state guide our growth. And importantly, uh, the, the uh, survey here and the resulting um, ideas that come out of it are not meant to undermine or replace local planning processes, but instead it's a data point that local decision makers can bring into those conversations to say, okay, here's what Utahns are thinking about growth. Yeah, I think it's super wise of the state to survey folks. And I, I do think that Utah is very open to hearing from its constituents. I moved here from California a quarter of a century ago, so don't lock me in with the the recent group. But I was just shocked at how receptive the the government, both local and and at the state level, was to feedback. And I really think this survey is a great idea. And, you know, one of the challenges, as you point out, is is just the amount of growth. Uh, My research notes here say that Utah was the fastest growing state in the nation from 2010 to 2020. And with that brings opportunities, it also brings challenges. Can you talk about, you know, and the challenges are different for somebody that's starting off and looking for their first good job than it is for somebody that's maybe lived here for 50 years and maybe wants things to stay the same. Can you talk about what the survey found, the differences between the younger people that responded to the survey versus the older people? 
Yeah, sure. Well, we Utah has a historically a, a very young population, right? We often have large families, lots of babies, and we've been one of the youngest states in the nation. But the demographics are showing that our, our region is starting to change, and we're going to be an increasingly older population as a state. And this is actually something that's happening across across the United States. Um, and as you hinted, uh, the way that people responded did somewhat depend on, on their age. We found that people who already were homeowners and had been in Utah for a long time were a little bit more supportive of, of more conservative change, whereas younger people and people that were renting, maybe they didn't already have the opportunity to purchase a home of their own, were a little bit more open to more growth. So it probably doesn't really surprise you, but I've been in Utah my entire life um, and I hope my kids are able to stay here as well but I look at uh, housing prices right now and uh, yeah I can see why younger people would be concerned about that. When we talk about Utah growing can you just take us a little bit into um, you know what that percentage of new population is compared to old you know i know that again our growth is it is the growth from within um from from families growing or is it from outside and then again are we seeing utahns also leave the state are we seeing you know that brain drain or anything else like that yeah great questions um it's a little bit of both um our, oh, during the pandemic, we saw a little bit of a bump of in-migration. So we saw more people realizing that they could telework from wherever they wanted, wherever they wanted to be. And so we had more people moving into the state during the pandemic. But prior to that, and actually projected to continue out to about 2040, the most dominant force behind our growth will continue to be our own natural increase. So that is births minus deaths within Utah. So again, our large families and continuing to, to have babies here in Utah will be the dominant force of our growth. However, with that little blip uh, during the pandemic, however, after about 2040, um, the projections show that we will have more and more in-migration um, and more net migration. So that is the, the balance of people moving out versus moving in. Um, people coming into the state will be the dominant force after about 2040 and continuing on. Now, a lot of people say, uh, you know, well, we have all these new people who are moving in um, and they they come from different places and they're not really Utahns. But the data is actually showing that about 25% of the people that are moving back into the state actually have Utah roots. So perhaps they were born here, they left for work or for college, and they're moving back to raise a family or to retire. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of people with Utah roots coming coming back into the state. Okay, that makes me feel a little bit better. Uh, the audience might be surprised that there were actually three, this was not one survey, it was actually three different surveys. Can you tell us what was the purpose of each of the three? Yeah, thank you. Well, we we recognize that Utah is not an entirely, um, you know, homogenous place. We have lots of different types of communities in our state. And so we had uh, we wanted to not ask people in, for example, Paiute County, what their thoughts were about um, high rise buildings and, and public transportation, if that's not an experience that they're living in their community. So we had three different versions. Uh, people would enter into the the survey, the very first question is, what is your zip code? And based on your zip code, you would be sent to a survey that is focused on urban areas, one that is focused on rural areas that are growing, 
or a third uh, for rural areas that are experiencing slow to no growth. Um, so that was kind of the defining factor. And really we wanted to make sure that people people were able to um, access survey questions that felt relevant to them. And then the survey was broken down beyond that around four different topics, housing, water, transportation, and open space. And, um, you know, just a, you know, a spoiler alert, what we heard overall is that while the majority of Utahns are feeling the pressures of growth, most don't think we should try to stop it. Um, we did offer the opportunity for people to select a no growth option throughout the survey. Um, and overwhelmingly that, that uh, did not receive the majority of the votes. You know, most people, most people said, yeah, no, we think we need to grow, but how we grow matters. And so that's really kind of where the meat of the survey is, is what does that growth look like? Now, we have you here today to talk about the survey results, but one thing I want to just go into before we get to that is how was the survey rolled out? What activities were associated with the input gathering and how many people did you have ultimately take the survey? Yeah, thank you. Great questions. So we had 28,000 people respond to the survey. Uh, it was kind of a challenging survey and it took a little bit of time. And so of that 28,000, we had probably 19,000 really extensive responses. Um, but we feel really pleased with the, the response that we received from that. Um, the way that we got the word out was primarily through social media. We also published some educational articles in various different uh, media outlets. Um, because the goal of the project wasn't only to solicit input, but was to help Utahns better understand some of these issues. And so that we did some, some educational articles. Uh, we had a whole bunch of workshops. We visited every corner of the state. Uh, we've had 30 different in-person workshops about that. We went to uh, community and cultural events and set up a booth. We published the survey both in English and in Spanish, and all of our advertising was in both English and Spanish. Uh, we did an interview with Telemundo. We offered stipends to community-oriented uh, community nonprofits for survey promotion um, to try to get the word out to some of our harder-to-reach populations um, and worked with ethnic chambers of commerce and a variety of different folks. So we tried really hard to make sure that every Utah had an opportunity to participate in the process. Okay, we've laid the groundwork. Now let's get to some of the insights. Uh, you said one of the topics was housing. Um, what what kind of what insights did you get from the survey? What types of questions were asked, and what kind of insights did you get from the responses? Sure. So in each of these different topics, we presented Utahns with four different options. One of those options was to try to stop growing. Um, the other options in the housing space were, okay, some new housings are right, but only in places where it doesn't affect me. It needs to be on the edges of our community. The next option was additive. It was, yes, yeah, some new housing is okay where it doesn't affect me, but also maybe around transit stations and downtowns. And then the third option was, uh, we'll accommodate some new housing everywhere, including within our existing communities. Overall, Utahns wrote back and said that they want a variety of housing products and price points. And the majority of people chose the option that allowed the most amount of new housing in the most number of places. So. 
80% of Utahns chose options that allowed for new housing. Um, about 20% chose the option that said, let's try to stop growth. Um, but the majority said, no, we realize that we need to, we need to keep providing new housing options. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, younger people and renters were more likely to choose the option that allowed the most housing in the most places. And I think just to maybe, uh, enlighten listeners a little bit more, you know, you, you weren't just looking at one question with four like one sentence bullets that they chose from. It was actually a bit more of an educational process. Is that correct? That when they chose one option, then it gave them, okay, then this equals this, that equals this. Yeah. And then they got to think about it a little bit more before they moved to the next step. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, these are complex situations and opening, uh, you know, prioritizing one value might mean a trade-off in another area. And so we tried to show upsides, downsides, some key considerations. Um, so for example, if you decided to, if you, if you were really, um, feeling like we should try to stop growth, one of the consequences of that was increasing housing costs. And so we wanted people to be able to wrestle with, with these different options and say, okay, well, if I don't want um, exorbitant housing costs, that means that we need to build more supply, which will bring the cost down. And so we asked people to, to explore each of those and, and weigh different trade-offs. Um, and also housing, water, transportation, and open space are all interconnected. And so sometimes prioritizing uh, one one topic may mean some trade-offs in some other areas as well. You know, we can we can build more houses, we can build roads. One thing we can't create more of is water, right? We mm -hmm. get what we get. Uh, I was actually on an event last week and, and somebody from the governor's office was uh, one of our guest speakers, did a great job. Um, but I was surprised at how optimistic he was and he had a lot of data on water not being a constraint of growth here in Utah. It's something you have to plan for decades ahead of time. Uh, but we had enough water, it was really about building the facilities to, to capture it and to transport it. Your survey also focused on water. What, what insights did you get from the survey about water? Yeah, uh, water was the section of the survey where we had the most consensus. Um, urban Utahns uh, and rural Utahns both wanted to see proactive and focused water conservation. I think all of the messaging about us being in a drought, despite our wonderful winter last year, um, Utahns realized that we need to be cautious about our, our water. And the thing that I found that was most encouraging from the survey results was this sense of shared responsibility. Water conservation needs to be the responsibility of, of not only new development, but also existing development. We need to retrofit our existing landscapes. It's not the, only the responsibility of cities and businesses, but it's also the responsibility of agriculture. And Utahns, no matter where you were in the state, uh, responded back with this, this shared sense of responsibility. There was very high support for offering rebates and incentives. There was high support for funding agricultural optimization projects, so helping um, ag water be more efficient. Um, and surprisingly, uh, for Utah, I think, there was a lot of support for actually requiring low water use landscaping in new development. And typically, as a state, we've been a little bit less gung-ho about new um, kind of requirement type options, policy options. But uh, in this area, Utah seemed to be pretty on board with it. 
yeah, we're not a big state for you know requirements, but however, when I moved here a quarter of a century ago, my HOA actually turned, I moved, I said I moved here from California, I actually did a couple of years in Arizona, so I was used to what, what they call zero-scape. Mm -hmm. And my HOA actually said, you cannot zero-scape your law. And I understand now, there's a law in Utah that says HOAs can't say that anymore. Yeah, yeah, I think that was an important change. Um, and that's, it goes to show how much we've learned, right? <laughs> as a state since that time. As more, used, as more move to Utah, no doubt there's going to be more traffic because more of us are going to be trying to get to more places. What were the highlights in this section of the report? Yeah, thank you. Utahns really wanted a whole variety of choices in their transportation. They wanted to be able to use public transit, trails, bicycles, and cars to get around. Um, so we saw significant support for increased investment in public transportation, um, buses, trains, but also a lot of investment um, support for bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure. Um, and so it was so interesting in urban areas, the uh, survey options that received the most support didn't even mention cars. It was all about public transportation um, and trails and bicycle infrastructure. In rural areas, we have a little bit more of geography and distance to cover and so they were supportive of a more balanced approach between investment in, in new highways, but also all a ton of support for public transportation and trails in, in uh, rural Utah as well. And we even heard some sort of pie in the sky ideas like uh, supporting the statewide rail. Um, and so it's nice to know that Utahns would be open to exploring this in the future. And um, there are some efforts that are happening at the state level to explore some options there. Well, I think we have a lot of people listening that are cheering, hearing about the transportation because I do think we're a very car-centric state right now. Um, however, making some of these changes, all, all of these changes requires money. Did the survey ask anything about, are you willing to pay a little bit more in tax in order to have this better Utah a quarter of a century, 10 years from now? We didn't ask that question in quite that specific of terms, but um, as Allison was mentioning, we we did ask people, um, you know, we there were little icons that would say pros and cons to various different options and increased infrastructure costs was one of the um, metrics that we would toggle with various different options. And so we tried to get at it that way and say, you know, here are some things that you'd like to do, but it might increase the cost of, of X, Y, or Z. Um, so yeah, that would be an interesting follow-up conversation is to then drill down and say, okay, well, you know, what if you had to pay for it? You know, how would that change your responses? Let's get to the last section of the survey, which concerns open space. What did you hear from residents about open space? Well, Utahns love their open spaces. And I think the Park City area is a perfect example of how recreation and having that access to open space is part of what makes our communities really, really special and, and why we choose to live here. Overall, Utahns wanted to preserve open spaces and have lots of recreational opportunities within and on the edges of their communities. So there was a lot of support for kind of filling in rather than growing out. So more infill development than having our cities expand their, their geographic footprint. Tons of support for more investment in natural recreational amenities, so trailheads and campgrounds, but also a lot of support for new 
sort of urban recreational amenities like uh, the the paved pathways that you you see in your community, urban trails, more parks. Um, and then as Utahns uh, recognize that, you know, we are going to see some new de development happening on kind of the edges of our communities, there was a lot of support for those new developments to be master planned or the idea that they're really thoughtfully designed to include ample parks and open spaces within them, as well as a mix of housing types and other land uses. And so the idea of having these kind of complete communities um, as we grow out, let's be intentional and make sure we're planning for those qualities of life amenities um, as we build out. We've been speaking with Laura Hansen. She's with the Governor's Office of Planning and Budget here in Utah. Laura, thank you for joining us. And before you go, can you tell our listeners how they can get, uh, how they can actually see the full survey results? You bet. Um, everyone can visit the website guidingourgrowth.utah.gov to see the full result results. And um, if I could just leave one takeaway, the reason Utah is a great place to live today is because of past planning efforts, and we can remain a great place to live in the future if we keep up the work. Completely agree. Laura, thank you for joining us. On October 16th of this year, just a few weeks ago, the Columbus, Ohio City Council reached an agreement with four area hospitals that led to wiping out of the medical debt for those who qualified. Columbus City Hall approved a sweeping landmark deal to wipe out $335 million of medical debt, providing financial relief to more than 340,000 moderate income residents in Columbus. Joining us this morning to talk about this program is Columbus, Ohio Council Member Rob Dorans, who led the initiative Rob, welcome to Mountain Money. Thank you, great to be here. Okay, uh, can you start off and, and just share with me, how did you find out that there was so, and, and a lot of, most cities are probably dealing with this, how did you find out that there was so much medical debt uh, from your community members? Yeah, I mean, it was rather surprising the, the more we dug into this issue. I, I think, you know, most folks sort of generally have an awareness that certainly our healthcare system, um, you know, puts significant burdens on particularly middle and low income, um, you know, families that, you know, don't have as high quality of uh, health insurance as, as we think that they should. And, you know, as we started engaging directly with our hospital partners, we, we really started to see the amount of this. And when we talk about you know, being over 330 million plus dollars, I think that was a staggering number to sort of identify. And, um, you know, it was certainly something that we think about that burden being on, you know, individuals and families' heads all across our community, it was certainly something that was very startling and really focused in on what could we do at the local level uh, to help these families gain some more economic stability that they didn't already have. One of the things as I think about this type of debt is as a municipality, how do you look at it and say, um, you know, this is how this type of debt incurred by our residents is impacting our community? What types of um, things either do you see because of this debt or are you hoping to see as a relief of this debt? You know, one of the things that we heard over and over and over again as we engage with residents uh, during the legislative process itself, and certainly over the last several weeks after we passed the legislation, 
was how many families would tell us that they were foregoing seeking medical care for themselves or a family member uh, because of the the debt that they knew that they owed a, a hospital system. Now our hospitals are you know great partners and provide charity care to the, uh, many folks in need, and certainly would never turn away folks that are in urgent need of medical care. But there was this deep uh, perception by by residents that you know, a medical bill from a year or two years or, you know, uh, five years ago uh, stood in the way of them seeking, you know, care today. And we know that from a health outcome standpoint, you know, delaying medical care is only going to make things worse for that individual and probably more financially stressing uh, long term as well. I'm, I'm curious, was, was that perception that because they had medical debt, they couldn't seek ongoing care for non-emergency services? Was, was that... Um, grounded in truth or was that just a misconception? Uh, certainly a misconception. And I think, you know, certainly when you're dealing with, uh, you know, folks that, uh, you know, have been incurring, uh, you know, financial issues that have put them behind the eight ball as far as their economic stability, I think there's just a lot of fear that that comes up with, with debt in general uh, of, of any kind. And I think when you talk about it being directly linked to something as important as, you know, seeking, you know, health care, um, that was something that we, we, while in reality, you know, they were not going to get turned away at the doctor's office or emergency room. Um, the perception was very real, and we, we heard that from many residents. And I think that's something that we've heard from folks as they've received these notifications that these debts have been wiped away. That you know, one of the big things is them thinking, okay, now I don't have to worry about you know taking my child to the pediatrician, or I don't have to worry about going get, going to get my my annual physical. That these are there's nothing standing in the way of me being a you know healthier individual. So once you understood the, the size and scope of this problem and what it was doing to your community, how do you, how do you start working towards a solution? Where'd you begin? Well, so this, we had a prior piece of legislation that was introduced by a former colleague of mine uh, late last year that would have partnered us with a nonprofit called RAP Medical Debt that does this work across the country. And they're a fantastic organization. And we really learned a lot from them. And they were very generous with their time and expertise. And I think, what, that really spurred, I think, some real direct discussions between us and our hospital systems, you know, how this had worked in other places, you know, uh, counties, cities, et cetera, had sort of partnered with that with that national nonprofit and allowed them to go ahead and do the negotiations themselves. Um, now, my colleague left council to take another, take another job, and I had sort of picked up the legislation. And I think that's where a lot of these sort of intense discussions with our direct hospital partners here in Central Ohio happened. And that's really where we you really learned about what their sort of debt practice practices are, who's affected by this. And I think that's really where we learn that we may be able to do something much broader uh, and impacting more people and much deeper in, in the impact of how much debt we'd be able to um, wipe off the books. And so it's, it's great that the debt was wiped out. It's great that you guys were able to deal directly with uh, the hospitals, but I'm guessing some money had to change hands to get to get the debt wiped out. Where did the money to wipe out that debt come from? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent and question. And I think something that I'm really proud of, uh, sort of the deal that we ended up striking with our hospital partners was that um, they actually voluntarily wiped away the debts themselves. So we actually, unlike what was happening in lots of other cities, uh, we did not buy the debt. There was no money exchanged directly with the hospital systems to retire that. They voluntarily did that on their own. We authorized legislation that we funded through our uh, American Rescue Plan funds from the federal government. Um, 
basically to do a contract with a nonprofit here in Columbus, which is uh, the our local hospital council, which is sort of the umbrella organization for all the health systems here in, here in Columbus. And what we agreed to do was basically to reimburse the cost of the administrative aspect of the program. So the, you know, the hospitals running credit reports, doing a variety of different administrative tasks in order to help identify who was going to be within the, the income target range. You know, that all cost them money, you know, time, et cetera. And through those discussions, you know, we told them we'd be more than happy to sort of help uh, alleviate some of those costs if they were willing to take what was a very big step on their part and wipe these debts off the books. So we ended up passing legislation that authorizes a contract for up to five hundred thousand uh, dollars. We think we'll probably end up spending less than that, but that's uh, sort of the, the top line that we had there, and that ultimately was how we got to the place where the hospital systems were ready to take the next step, uh, do their part, and and forget the debt that had been on their books sometimes for a number of years. And then you know we stepped up and, and paid for those administrative costs for them to do so. I, I know you're not representing hospitals, but it still seems like such a large feat for them to dissolve $335 million worth of medical debt. And yet, you know, there's other companies like this RIP medical debt where they would have assumed some, some money as well. I I guess I'm, I'm slightly shocked at, at to like, were there really no other terms and they just waived this? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's a pretty incredible uh, example of, I think, the public and private sector working very closely. I think they heard from us. I think there was a lot of misperceptions from the hospital systems about how debt was affecting or not affecting some of our residents. You know, I think one of the things that was rather key in this in this scenario was a number of years ago, our hospital system stopped um, were, stopped selling medical debt to third party collections agencies. So it was much easier because they still held the debt themselves. Yeah. And so that reduced sort of a, you know, sort of a middleman that was there already. And I think once we really sat down with them and talked through from an income level perspective, who we were really trying to help here, that oftentimes those folks were not going to be terribly collectible to begin with. Um, So, you know, basically our message, how long do you want to sort of put people through the ringer here uh, in order to, you know, maybe, you know, get back a small amount of the debt that's owed? You know, this you know, they worked with us as really this being a big teaching example for, I think, a lot of folks in the community about how to sort of manage these these issues for themselves, I think, uh, in a much better way. Um, but, it, yeah, certainly it is an incredible credit to, to these hospital systems that they were willing to uh, sit down and dig through this with us on a very granular level for, for close to a year uh, before we were able to bring this legislation forward. And certainly um, something that we're very proud of and I think this is a rather unique story uh, on this topic, which is, you know, sort of come up, I know, in a, in a number of uh, communities across the country, but we've been very proud that the level of collaboration that happened. And, you know, a lot of those discussions weren't easy. Um, you know, it, certainly anything that this that is uh, as complicated as anything in healthcare is, and you talk about a year plus to, to sort of get where we're at, um, you know, it wasn't, you know, everyone saying, oh, we can do this immediately overnight. But it was certainly, I think, a lot of learning back and forth and um, still very proud of uh, everyone involved for ending up where we got to. Let's talk about who's helped by this debt. We know it's approximately 340,000 people. What debt size do they have? How long have they been holding this debt? Is there an, um, are they within an uh, average median income? Can you give us that scope? Yeah, so the, the folks targeted by this program um, are between 200 and 400% of the uh, federal poverty guidelines. So 
For an individual, that's someone um, generally is making around $55,000 a year. For a family of four, that's uh, generally about $110,000 a year. Um, and the, one of the reasons that was really important to sort of target those income groups was one, uh, below 200% of the federal poverty guideline, uh, our hospital systems already provide uh, charity care to those individuals already. You know, most of those folks uh, either are on Medicaid or uh, you know, should be enrolled in Medicaid. So a lot of those uh, costs that the hospitals have incurred are, are able to be reimbursed by the federal government or they're able to write them off. I think the, the really key in targeting these individuals was you know, these are oftentimes, you know, especially at the lower end of those income spectrums here in Columbus, sort of the working poor. You know, these are folks that have a job, oftentimes have health care, uh, maybe not the best health care. Um, but we knew based on looking at the numbers, this sort of disproportionately affected women and people of color. And when we think about sort of the impact from an economic standpoint that the pandemic had on, on folks in our community, thinking through sort of economic stability, you know, those were folks that were in that, you know, in that category of individuals that, you know, saw a lot of disruption economically uh, during the COVID years. So this really said to us, hey, this is a really great way for us to provide some additional economic stability for, for those individuals, you know, get this debt off their books, remove some of those, um, you know, perceived barriers to accessing medical care. Um, and really help them start anew. And, and again, going back to the point I made a moment ago, um, you know, the hospital systems here in Central House stopped selling their, their, their medical debt to third-party collectors back in uh, 2015. So we're talking about um, basically a seven-year period or so that we've been able to really um, engage with them on this. And I think that was also key because we were able to look at sort of a finite amount of time, a finite amount of individuals in the community. And I think that also, you know, really helped logistically lead us where we ended up getting to. Great. And uh, one of the things I want to ask is, it's nice to start with a clean slate, but was there any educational program that is helping people from getting in this situation again? Uh, or was it really just they had an unexpected and expensive medical uh, debt and no amount of education could prevent something like that? Yeah, so the um, great, great question. So the one thing that we've you know, had the question asked a lot is like, you know, so how, you know, what do people need to do now, right? And, the, the, you know, this is one of the rare instances in which government, particularly the local level, is, uh, you know, I think doing something very impactful that we're not requiring anyone to jump through any hoops, right? So, you know, folks are getting a notification letter in the mail, letting them know that uh, the debt's been forgiven, you know, who was holding it, you know, those basic details, but also giving them information about sort of, uh, you know, basic guidance on um, sort of these kinds of issues, right? And we have got a, a number of, you know, nonprofit partners in Columbus about financial literacy and, and other uh, related topics that um, they're being pointed to. So to, to your point, um, even if this was just a one-off kind of situation that got caught in the middle of, uh, we wanted to take this as an opportunity to, to provide folks with more sort of education around these topics. And I think that's also something that the hospital systems really leaned into themselves was, you know, they are you know, members of the community themselves. They, they provide a lot of support to people here. Um, and, you know, this is a difficult topic for them to deal with, given how our healthcare system is structured in this country. And I, I think lots of us would do things very differently um, if, if we could. But, you know, none of us controls it all, all on our own. I think they looked at this as an opportunity for that educational uh, aspect to people understand more about how they can work with, you know, their hospitals and, and their medical providers to avoid these kinds of long-term uh, debt issues hanging over their head. Okay, congratulations again for that. We've been speaking with Columbus, Ohio Council Member Rob Dorans. Rob, thank you for joining us this morning. Yep, thanks for taking the time.
built for winter and restored with warmth, Wasatch Ski Chairs offers an expanding catalog of authentic, professionally fabricated ski lift furniture. Ryan Lewis is the founder and CEO of Wasatch Ski Chairs and joins us this morning to talk about his unique business. Ryan, good morning. Thanks for having me in studio. So talk to us about this idea of, of making and selling furniture from actual ski lift chairs. Yeah. Um, I'm also the owner of Meta Designs, a custom metal fabrication shop. And being in the Mountain West here, we've often received requests from people that have purchased ski lifts or ski chairs from uh, the ski resorts and had a problem. What do you do with it? So we've custom fabricated bases and hangers and whatever else anybody wants to turn their ski chair into. So, so knowing that, that, you know, you were um, originally starting with, you know, people coming to you and kind of solving a problem they have, it looks not like you kind of took more of a, a front seat on this and, and now are actually one of the people that procure the chairs. Can you talk a little bit about how you source your materials, these ski chairs? Yeah, uh, we had the opportunity a couple years ago through working with Snowbird to purchase the GAD2 uh, chairlift that they decommissioned in 2013. So we had uh, 100 chairs and this was the start. This was the seed and the opportunity to then recondition all of them and then sell those as uh, reconditioned ski chairs. That's a lot of chairs. It was a lot were, of chairs. Were they kept there or did you have to inventory them somewhere? Uh, Snowbird, as many resorts, have a lot of storage, oh. right? So they kept them around in storage since uh, 2013, just collecting dust. Now, now, wait, hold on. You said a lot of chairs. Give me a number. How many chairs? There was 100 chairs from uh, GAD2. Thank you. Yes. It's always nice to kind of get that, uh, you know, it's all different. Which right? is still a limited number of chairs. Absolutely. That is not a lot. No. Right, right. It's not a lot, but it takes a lot of space. So it does. them inventorying, it made it a lot easier for you to say, yeah, let's let's do this. For sure. Um, two of the products that are currently available on your website are the Snowbird GAD, GAD2 lift chair bench, as well as the Park City Canyons Red Pine Gondola Cabins. Tell us about those pieces of furniture and, and how... You know, what people, help them visualize what, what these are. Sure, sure. So being the owner of a custom metal fabrication shop, we have a ski chair. We can create that, turn that ski chair into absolutely anything. A bench uh, for a park, a seating for a restaurant. We can hang it from the front porch. We can have it just be a bench that's in your home. Um, indoor, outdoor, doesn't matter for a ski chair. The gondolas... The options are endless. We had the opportunity to work with Park City Community Foundation and we purchased 11 of the Red Pine gondolas. And we have also 11 gondolas that other people purchase through the organization. So we have 22 of them total and we've turned them into a bar for a private residence. We're working on a design for a sauna. So you can have a sauna in your backyard in an old Red Pine gondola. We considered putting one on a golf cart frame and running it down Main Street for the 4th of July parade. The options are completely endless uh, on what you can turn one of those cabins into. And they've been absolute fun projects to take part in. And that's what I, I would have thought the opposite. I would have thought that Gondola would, would have given us limited options versus more. But you seem to be exploring that with both customers and then in, internally. Correct. Uh, a client turned one into just a lounge. We upholstered all the seats, put in a table, repolished windows, new paint job, 
anything can be done to those cabins. And we actually surprisingly have listeners from six continents on the world. Um, these things are probably difficult to ship. I'm curious, do you have out-of-state clientele? Out of our 100 ski chairs uh, from GAD2, we've probably shipped 15 or 20 of them to the East Coast. Wow. These are all people that travel from around the world uh, or wherever, and they fly here to Utah, and they ski, and they enjoy the resort. So we crate everything up and ship it out. Shipping a gondola, we'll have to have a conversation about that, but it's all, it's all possible. So I want to go back into kind of where you started in saying that, you know, you're with Meta Designs, a custom metal fabricator. So this is almost, I don't want to say like a side hustle, but like, you know, it came to you based on a need, based on a demand that you start to grow. But talk to us a little bit about Meta. How did that start? Where, how long has that been in place? So Meta Designs uh, started about 18 years ago. And prior to that, I lived here in Park City uh, during the mid-90s, and I worked on building some homes here with a private contractor owner in Old Town. So that's sort of my roots here in Park City. And I took the construction trade and moved down to Salt Lake and started a metal fabrication shop, which has been an awesome uh, experience because it gets us back up here to Park City to work on projects up here as well. And I apologize because it's... It wasn't over the weekend, but a little bit longer since I looked at yourself. But don't you do kinetic as we do well? do kinetics as so, well, yeah. So you're doing... Okay. So, um, again, you can do pieces like a large staircase, or you can do other things, but then also incorporate some sort of movement into that, which seems really cool. Correct. Kinetic architecture. So windows, walls, roofs that move. With the push of a button or the turn of a wheel, you can move a entire wall and change your space completely. There's no more limits with the side of a home from the living room to the deck if you can move a wall. It's, they're wild, wild pieces of architecture. And, and I'm curious, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, these are, these are beautiful pieces, not, not just uh, structural, but, but they're art as well. I'm, Cur I'm curious, how uh, impactful you are to like uh, the economic cycles. Do you see a lot of kind of, I'm guessing right now or last year or two years ago was things were really, really strong and maybe things have slowed down a little bit. What have, what have you seen in your business as interest rates have gone higher, maybe remodeling slowing down a little bit? Well, you guys know more than, uh, than anybody else with the developments going on here in Park City and the Wasatch back, there's no lack of new construction. There's no lack of money coming here. The, the reaching the limits, reaching for the limits of architecture, the size of homes, what people want, the experiences they want in their homes, gives us a really good outlook for kinetic architecture. And, and knowing that, you know, it's not necessarily slowed down on the demand side for you, how big is your studio? How many, um, metal fabricators do you have? And is that a skill hard to find? Yeah, great question. Um, we'll start with the hard to find skill. Yes. Okay. Uh, finding welders is not hard. Finding craftsmen is a challenge. We are, yes, welders and our medium is working with metal, but you really have to have a finish quality eye and a super um, detailed attention for detail. It is hard to find those employees. 
Um, we look for good people that are willing to learn and really curate their craft. Um, our shop is 12,000 square feet down in Salt Lake, and right now we're 18 total employees. That's solid. And when new developments come up, like you were talking about moving walls, and I think you said moving roofs, which seemed like it would be quite a bit harder, uh, those are probably skills you did not have 20 years ago. How do you learn those skills? Are there like uh, craft associations that you can go to and you can learn from your peers around the nation? Or how, how do you make that leap to the next level? Uh, it was a five-minute decision from a contractor <laughs> that I had worked with many times before. Uh, he asked me, he sent me a set of plans for something that was a kinetic architecture, kinetic wall. Never seen anything like this before. We studied it, had really no idea how to tackle this. And he said, I believe that you can do it. Can you do it? And it was well, shoot, a can-do. He believed in me, <laughs> which was a huge part, a huge push. And we said, yeah, we can, we can figure this out and we can make this happen. And that was the first project. So you learned on your own. We learned case. on our own. I, yeah. A fearless attitude, I think, is key for success in business. Uh, a can-do attitude. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, as we start to wrap up our time with you, can you let our listeners know where they can find out more about Wasatch Ski Chairs as well as Meta Designs? Yeah, uh, you can get us at wasatchskichairs.com. You can take a look at Wasatch Ski Chairs on Instagram. And then Meta Designs is metadesignsslc.com. There you go. We've been speaking with Ryan Lewis. He's with Wasatch Ski Chairs, and we've been just chatting about his unique business. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us on Mountain Money. Thank you. You've been listening to KPCW's Mountain Money. If you like Mountain Money, let us know. Please leave a review.